Well, can I ask you? Uh, we're going to start by looking at a meme, all right? Have any of you seen this meme on the internet? All right? Here's a lady with this guy, and she's calling out, any doctor here? And his mind says, I'm a doctor. What's going on? A heart attack. I'm a doctor in philosophy. <laughs> He's going to die. We are all going to die. <laughs> well, friends, it is true, isn't it? Uh, we are all going to die. Uh, in fact, you could say that we are all dying. Now, some of us are dying at a faster rate than others. Uh, some of us have further progressed in the process than others. But all of us are in the process of dying. And unless the Lord returns first, one day we will all be dead. In our passage today, we read of two men who were dying with Jesus. Uh, they were dying at a very fast rate. Uh, they would be dead by the end of the day. But there they were with Jesus on the day of his death. And how they would respond to him would settle their destinies forever. Before I look at the passage detail, let's just recall where we're up to in Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke has been telling us about all the events leading up to Jesus' death. Uh, Jesus had been tried before the Jewish leaders and then before Pilate. The, the Roman governor, and then Herod, the puppet king from the north, then back to Pilate again. Uh, Pilate had decided that Jesus was innocent, but the Jewish leaders insisted that he be killed, and, and Pilate gave in to them, and so Jesus was sent to be crucified. Uh, they forced a guy called Simon of Cyrene to help him with carrying the cross, and while many people, especially the women, were mourning for him, Jesus warned them to weep for themselves, because God was going to bring his judgment on the city. We pick up the story in verse 32 of Luke 23, and there we discover that Jesus was not the only person to be crucified that day. There were two others, both of, both of whom were criminals. And for their crimes, they had been sentenced to death. And so these two criminals, verse 32, were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And they came, verse 33, to a place that is called the Skull, it was a place that was just outside the, the city walls of the time, probably called the skull because that was its shape. That's what it looked like, a skull. Uh, and so there at the skull, verse 33, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. As the Old Testament had predicted, he was numbered among the transgressors. Now, at the end of our passage, we will see the response from these two criminals. One of them will scoff. He will say, down in verse 39, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal will have a very different response. He will respond in faith. He will rebuke the scoffing criminal in verse 40. And he will say to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Two very different responses from these two criminals on the either side of Jesus and the cross. They, they're going to see the same things, but they're going to respond in very different ways. And between introducing these two criminals in verse 30, 32 and 33, and telling, them the telling us their response in verse 39 to, to, to 43, the Holy Spirit, through Luke, shows us five things. Five things that these criminals would have seen as well. Five things that lead to each of them giving their opposite responses. 
and five things to which each one of us us must make our own response to the crucified Christ. Joining one criminal or the other in the way that we respond to him. So look at those five things. Let's look at those five things now. Now the first thing the criminals probably see is Jesus praying. And what he prays there is in the first half of verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I said probably see. Uh, because if you look in the footnotes of your Bible, you see a little one there in the church Bible. All right, you go to the bottom, it says, some manuscript omit the sentence, and Jesus dot, 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 what they do. What do we mean by that? Let me explain. The early copies of the Bible were handwritten. Uh, one manuscript was copied to another. But they weren't just copied like one copy here, one copy here, one copy here, all the way down, because then one mistake here will continue all the way down, right? Uh, uh, so uh, what, what happens is there's, maybe there's the original there, and maybe there's a few copies here. Each copy's got a few copies. Each copy's got a few copies, right? Each copy of this has got a few copies. Each copy of this got a few copies. Each copy, okay? And so you've got each copy's got all the multiple copies all over the place. Does that make sense? Right? Uh, and we might have one copy from here, one copy from there, one copy from there, one copy from there, one copy from there, one copy from there. And we've actually got far more copies of the New Testament documents than anything else in the ancient world. Uh, in fact, we've got about 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, more being discovered each year. Now, we believe that the original documents are the Word of God, not any particular copy. And so there's a whole science called textual criticism in which scholars work to get as close as possible to the original text. And textual critics look at each of the different manuscripts. They sort them into families depending on where they're found and, and what are little copying mistakes are found in them so they can work out which are dependent, which are independent of each other. So if a scribe say, makes a spelling mistake here, right, then all the copies that come after that will have the same spelling mistake, but not the other copies on this side. Right? Uh, and so you can work out which of the families. And so you look at the minor things that differ across the different manuscripts. You can usually see what happened and use them to identify your manuscripts. And so what we don't do is just choose one text down here and then burn all the others and say, wow, you see, we've got such a pure text. Right? Happy dumb. Thank God our forebears didn't do anything like that. Not that they could, because then we'd have no idea if the text down here is the same as the original up there. But because we've got this variety of independent witnesses, we can have confidence. We can compare these independent strands of the manuscripts and the families and, and see how they match up. And they match up very well. Uh, and because for the New Testament we have so many more manuscripts and so much closer to the original time than, than uh, other ancient documents, we can be pretty sure that we have the correct text for the New Testament in m- most places. But there are some places where we are not so sure because the textual evidence can go either way. And where there is something of significance, when we're not so sure, that is shown as a footnote in the Bible, like you see the footnote here. Now, it's a very good thing our Bible translators do that, so there is transparency. Uh, in the very few significant cases where we're not sure, we know we're not sure. And we can be careful uh, not to depend too much on those verses. And can I say there is nothing in that not sure category that makes any difference to doctrine or Christian living over, or the overall storyline of the Bible. Everything we can learn from those not sure passages, we can actually learn from elsewhere. So that's okay as well. And it's good that the translators tell us where they are not sure, 
so we don't have to worry about the rest of the Bible where we are, sure. Uh, and so paradoxically, verses like this can give us confidence for reading the Bible because we know that if there's any serious doubt that we need to consider, we'll be told. So let's assume that this verse is, or actually this half of us, it's a little bit there, is part of the original text, although we're a little bit hesitant because not completely sure. But let's assume it is. And we hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, who is the them in the prayer? Well, the immediate context helps us a lot, isn't it? Because in verse 33, they, the Roman soldiers, crucify him. In the second half of verse 34, they, the Roman soldiers, cast lot for his guns. So if the day just before this is the Roman soldiers and the day just after this is the Roman soldiers, then I think until proven otherwise, we can safely assume that Luke wants us to understand that the them Jesus is referring to is the Roman soldiers. As the soldiers crucify Jesus, he prays for their forgiveness. They don't know he's the son of God. As far as they know, he's another criminal, a pretend king, an insurrectionist who was trying to overthrow the Romans. That's what the Jews accused him of. That's the official reason why he's being sentenced to death. But they still mock him, ridicule him, and treat him in an awful way. But Jesus doesn't take it out on them. He prays for their forgiveness. And in a few moments, he will die to purchase it. Now, What's his prayer answer? Well, we do know of at least one soldier who was converted that day. Uh, later on in verse 47, after Jesus died, um, the centurion who saw everything that had taken place praised God. He said, surely this man was innocent. He believed in Jesus. We don't know what happened to the other soldiers, but if they came to believe in Jesus, then they would be forgiven as well. For the death of Jesus that they had even participated in would be enough to pay for their sins. And Jesus prays that they would be forgiven. He does not bear ill will toward them. He came to seek and save the lost, even the ones who crucified him. And brothers and sisters, if we are followers of Jesus, then we need to have this attitude as well. We know that God will judge with justice. There is no question about that. We are to pray for justice to come. We are to announce God's coming judgment like Jesus did. But we also are to have hearts that long for people to be forgiven. Even people who have wronged us. And we know they won't be forgiven unless they repent and trust in Jesus. And so we're to earnestly pray that they would. The fact that God will forgive them doesn't mean that he doesn't take what they did to us seriously. It doesn't mean that we don't matter. God takes what they did so seriously and we matter so much that Jesus had to die before they could be forgiven. That we should pray like Jesus did for their salvation. Jesus himself taught us earlier in Luke's gospel 
said, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Do pray, not only for the judgment, but pray for the salvation of those who've kidnapped Pastor Raymond Cole. What a good thing to pray for, even as we pray for God that would justice in that situation. Jesus did what he taught us to do. He prayed for the ones who killed him. And the two criminals would have heard him pray. One of them would scoff at him in his weakness. Uh, the fact that Jesus didn't verbally give it back to the soldiers but instead prayed for their forgiveness would have just emboldened him to join them in their scoffing. But the other would realize that Jesus didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He was consistent. He was good. And indeed, he did nothing wrong. The second thing the two criminals see is the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. We see that in the second half of verse 34. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Uh, this reminds us, isn't it, of Psalm 22, which we read earlier. Uh, the psalm was written by David, the ancestor of Jesus, ancient king of Israel. And yet amazingly, it was prophetically describing what would happen to Jesus, the, the true king, a thousand years later. And in that psalm, the king cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is mocked and he's scorned and he's killed. And in verse 18 of the psalm, the, the suffering king says this. It's coming up on the screen. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus couldn't have set this up. The soldiers are doing it, not the disciples. But prophecy is being fulfilled. And it's not just the soldiers who are fulfilling the prophecy. The other enemies of Jesus are joining in as well. Uh, while the people are watching in verse 35, the rulers are scoffing at him. They're saying, he saved others. Let him save himself he's the, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers are mocking him in verse 36. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And that too connects with Psalm 22, where the king laments in verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. See, friends, the, the, criminal, the, 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 the criminals could see the soldiers throwing dice. Who's going to get Jesus' clothes? while the people are there scoffing at him. And as Jews, that should scream out to them, Psalm 22, Psalm 22. And Luke purposely put these things together, and he purposely tells us about the soldiers casting lot for Jesus' clothes, to tell us Psalm 22. That's where we should go to understand this. And when we go to Psalm 22, what did we see just now? A king forsaken by God. The criminals may not have understood this at the time, but we know now that Jesus was forsaken because in his death he was facing God's wrath against human sin on our behalf. He was bearing the punishment that we deserve so that God can offer us forgiveness without saying the wrong things we've done is okay. But in Psalm 22, we also saw a king whose prayer is heard by God. 
We see in the second half of the psalm the king thanking God for saving him. We see him declaring what God has done. His rescue is going to be told to the whole world. And God will be praised that that story is repeated from generation to generation. And if this is the fulfillment of Psalm 22, then Jesus' death on the cross is not going to be the end of the story. Somehow or other, God is going to rescue him and the whole world is going to know about this. And all the families of the earth will worship God because of this king who died, but then after that somehow is rescued and reigns. If Jesus is really fulfilling Psalm 22, then even though he dies, surely he must be raised from the dead. And if he is that king that is spoken of there, then, then surely he will have a kingdom that lasts forever. No wonder one criminal says to him later, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He has eyes to see. But the other one sees the same thing in front of him. But he just scoffs. He doesn't get Psalm 22. And he doesn't believe that Jesus fulfills it. The third thing we see here is the rulers scoffing. We looked at it briefly just now. We'll look at it in a bit more detail now. Uh, the rulers are these leaders of Israel. Uh, we met them before in verse 13 where Pilate uh, called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. They were the ones who had, who had sent Jesus to him to be tried. And after the resurrection in chapter 24 verse 20, uh, the, the, uh, on the disciples on the road to Emmaus will say that the chief priests and rulers delivered Jesus to be condemned to death and crucified him. These rulers are Israel's leaders. And what do they say about Jesus? Oh, here's what they say. Verse 35. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Interesting, isn't it? They know that Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God. They know that he saved others. Uh, they know that he opened blind eyes, which only God can do. Uh, they know that he, he made the leper clean, which only God can do. They know he released the demonized with a simple command, demonstrating incredible spiritual authority. He had saved so many people, and they know it. They don't even pretend that he didn't. But they sarcastically challenge him now to save himself. If he, who is, if he is who he claims to be. These two criminals heard this. One of them would join in the scoffing, follow the leaders. The other one would realize that if he really did save others, then he must be who he claimed to be. Even if he didn't save himself. And of course today we know that he didn't save himself so that he could save us. He could have saved himself. But if he did, he would not have borne the penalty of our sin. And we would be lost forever. Thank you, Jesus, that you saved us rather than yourself. The fourth thing we see is again mocking. 
And this time it comes from the soldiers, the very people who Jesus was praying for. And they offer him, in verse 36, sour wine, presumably as a taunt. But little do they know that there's another psalm of King David that speaks even of this. In that psalm, Psalm 69, the king is again praying to God and, and part of his lament is that his enemies give him sour wine to drink. Interestingly though, in that psalm, the king is calling for God's judgment on his enemies. Here, Jesus is praying for God's forgiveness. Both are right. God will either judge or forgive depending on whether or not they repent. Jesus prayed earlier for their forgiveness, but the soldiers at this point are still mocking. They're copying the rulers. They are challenging Jesus. They say in verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Get off the cross if you can. The two criminals hear this. One of them would join in the insults. The other one would realize that Jesus really is the king of the Jews even if he didn't save himself. And today, after the resurrection, we know that he is indeed the king. God confirmed that 100% by raising him from the dead. And God's plan, well, it was that the king would enter his kingdom through suffering. He was the servant king who would die for his people. He would take the punishment on the cross to purchase a people for himself. Like David, he would suffer first and then enter his kingdom. Could have saved himself, but then he wouldn't be our king. And we wouldn't be in his kingdom. Thank you, King Jesus, for not saving yourself. The fifth and final thing the criminals saw that we see here today is the inscription above Jesus' head. Back in those days when a criminal was crucified, the crime for which he was being executed would be written and nailed to the cross uh, on top of him. All right, so that everyone can see what is the reason for his death. The two criminals would have had their own inscriptions. But look what's written above Jesus' head, verse 38. This is the king of the Jews. It was meant to be sarcastic. It was meant to be making fun of him. <laughs> and insulting the Jews at the same time. The king of the Jews, up there on the cross. This is what Rome thinks of pretenders. But God had so ordained that as his son hung on the cross, it should be abundantly clear who he was and why he was there. The sign on the cross tells the whole world that Jesus is the king that God had been promising throughout the Old Testament. The one who will judge the world and rule the nations. The one whose kingdom would last forever. One criminal would look at the sign and appreciate Roman sarcasm. The other criminal would look at the sign and appreciate the sovereign hand of God identifying his king. So now we've seen what those criminals saw. Jesus praying, soldiers gambling, rulers scoffing, soldiers mocking, inscription on Jesus' head, above Jesus' head. 
One criminal responds by doing the popular thing, joining in the mockers. Rulers, the soldiers, now even the criminal. He rails at him in verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's so easy to go along with the crowd, isn't it? So attractive. Who doesn't want to be the same as everyone else? Who wants to take a lone minority position? If everyone's making fun of Jesus, who wants to be on his side? And when you are down, so far down, your last bit of relief is making fun of someone who is down even further. But the other criminal rebukes the first one. Verse 40. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You and I are also dying, this criminal says to his, his fellow criminal. If you are dying, you should fear God. You're about to meet him as your judge. But instead of preparing yourself for eternity, you're mucking around, joining the crowd, and attacking Jesus. You and I, the criminal says, ah, you are dying because we are dying because we deserve to die. But Jesus doesn't deserve to die. He has done nothing wrong. And when you put all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, it's, it's abundantly clear. Jesus isn't pretending to be God's king. He really is God's king. And I think I can approach that king even though I'm a criminal. Because I've seen that he's willing to forgive even the soldiers who crucified him. And so the dying criminal says to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Friends, like those two criminals, you and I are dying. We might be dying more slowly than those criminals, but make no mistake, we are still dying. And like them, we will soon be dead. But like those two criminals, we have now seen Jesus crucified. We have seen him praying for the people who killed him. We've seen the soldiers gambling, the rulers scoffing, the soldiers mocking, fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. We've seen the inscription above his head. How will we respond? How will you personally respond to the crucified Jesus. You're going to be like criminal number one and join in the scoffers. It'd be so easy to do. But let me tell you this, my friend. If you are dying, then you should fear God because you're about to meet him as judge. Prepare yourself for eternity instead of mucking around, joining with a crowd that's attacking Jesus. You and I are dying because we deserve to die. We are dying because we have sinned. All of us have sinned. All of us will die. But Jesus did not deserve to die. He did nothing wrong. He really is God's king, and he died to save his people. He died so that if you believe in him, you can be forgiven and have eternal life. Don't be like criminal number one. Be like criminal number two. Turn to Jesus in faith. Believe he is the king. 
Know his heart. He wants to forgive you. And cry out to him for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. How does Jesus respond to the criminal who believed in him? He doesn't say, well, you should have come earlier. You think you can live a life of crime and now repent at the last minute? No, 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 no. That's not Jesus. Jesus said to the dying criminal in verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise comes from an ancient Persian word meaning garden. It was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the Garden of Eden where God and humankind lived in perfect relationship before sin came and mucked it up. It later came to be identified with a place where God's people dwell with him immediately after this present life while, while waiting for the resurrection. And Jesus says to the criminal, truly I say to you, this is absolutely certain. Today you will be with me in paradise. But, 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 but Jesus, hang on, this, 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 this guy's a criminal. He's a criminal guilty by his own admission of a capital offense. Today you will be with me in paradise. But Jesus, he, he hasn't been baptized. He hasn't been to Bible study. He hasn't been to church. Hasn't preached the gospel. Hasn't helped the poor. Hasn't done anything at all to make up for his life of crime. But that's the whole point. He could do nothing but ask Jesus. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. All he could do was to come to Jesus in faith. To acknowledge him as king. To ask to be part of his kingdom. And in a few hours, this king and this criminal will be walking together in the garden. Friends, as far as our eternal salvation goes, we are as helpless as that criminal. There is nothing we can do to contribute to our own salvation. Lots of things we must do in, as a result of salvation, but nothing we can do to gain it. All we can do is ask Jesus in faith, and that's all we need to do. Ask, and you will receive. Trust in him as your king. His death is big enough to get rid of all your sins. And truly he will say to you, you will be with me in paradise. And what if you're already a believer? What if you've already turned to Jesus in faith? Well, to start with, you can rejoice, can't you? Because it doesn't matter now that you're dying. No matter how slow or fast your dying takes, you can, you can die in peace. Because you have the promise of Jesus that applies to you. It applies to you the day that you die. Today you will be with me in paradise. But until that day, you serve Jesus in his kingdom. Do what that criminal number two managed to do before his death. Tell other dying people, one dying person to another, 
that they really ought to stop their disbelief and come to Jesus. And do what Jesus did. Seek to love your enemies. Pray for those who harm you, that they may be forgiven. Even make sacrifices that they might hear the gospel and repent and believe and be willing to go against the crowd for Jesus. To stand up and be counted when his name and his cause are under attack. Don't mock Jesus when the world mocks him. Don't join with those who despise him and make fun of him. Instead, be willing to be taunted and mocked together with him by unbelievers who cannot see things with the eye of faith. And above all, be grateful to Jesus that despite the taunting, he stayed on the cross for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus stayed on the cross despite the taunting of the rulers and the soldiers and the criminal. Thank you that he was obedient to you and that instead of saving himself, he saved us. We thank you for his death that fulfills the Old Testament prophecies and shows that he really is your king. And we pray that each person present here today would turn to him for salvation, know him as their king, and be with him forever. And we pray that we would all be able to rejoice in his promise of salvation, to bear the taunting of others with him, and follow his example of loving our enemies and praying for their salvation. And we ask this, Lord, in his name. Amen.